Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. Shana Tova. I think I was wondering if there would be any Jews here. And the only ones left are split. Um, thank you to Nat and to all the folks here at the Shambhala Center. for hosting uh, all of us here, and thank you to Simone. Um, It's amazing to look around and know almost all of you. It's really exciting to me. And um, uh, I've been quoting a statement that Thich Nhat Hanh made this summer, where he said that the next Buddha will be Sangha that the next Buddha will be community. And um, I think this uh, really speaks to my own interest and my own work. And I think that if the Dharma, whether it's the Yoga Dharma or the Buddha Dharma, is really going to be able to offer practices that work with our own patterns for greed and hatred and uh, confusion, Uh, institutionalized patterns of violence and militarism and an incredibly unjust economic uh, system, um, then we have to work together as a community um, to put our practices to work uh, in the world where there's immense imbalance and suffering. And I think that starts through evenings like this where people can cross from one school to another school, one system to another system, and we can develop a grassroots democratic practice that crosses ecumenical boundaries. So that uh, when we say Sangha, there really is a community that is putting their practice to work uh, in the face of a culture that does everything it can to shut down creativity and uh, leisure time, which is needed, uh, both are needed, um, for this practice. And I've already started not following my notes, so we'll see where this goes. I also just want to say, too, that this room really is an important place for me personally. Um, 
at a time in my life where I had a, a, quite a crisis um, and I decided that the Dharma would be the focus of my life, um, uh, which was 1995. Um, I came here for a year and, uh, and I lived right down the road. And this place was uh, an incredible um, sanctuary for me. And um, so it's really meaningful to be here in this room. I don't know how many years that is later, 15 years or whatever. Um, and uh, to be sitting here and, uh, and seeing so many friends and, uh, and people who also are turning to this practice as a sanctuary and also seeing people who have been flirting with this practice who are starting to make the Dharma the center of their life and not just a hobby or something you do before you go to bed with Pima Chodron's books. So I thought what I would do tonight is um, talk a little bit about some of the Buddha's teachings and some of Patanjali's teachings, even though there are so many other teachings I would like to explore, but you can read the book for that. But I thought I would just sort of pick up a theme um, between these two uh, teachers that uh, I think will be helpful for all of us. And um, uh, the first is I wanted to read uh, from the Pali Canon. This is uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses uh, or retranslated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, who I was fortunate enough to spend some time with this summer. And um, it's quite intimidating hanging out with Bhikkhu Bodhi because you say things like, well, the Buddha said, but you're really saying, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated that the Buddha said, and he would, like, correct you every sentence. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty intimidating. Can you guys fit in? Uh, Heather, can you get in there? Pilar? Jack, have you got a spot? There are two accounts of the Buddha's awakening. One account, which uh, is very clean, is when the Buddha describes uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and um, it's perfect. Um, and it's also not very personal. But there's another account of the Buddha's awakening that's often not um, studied, and that only recently um, I've learned about. And um, it's from the 26th, 26th section of the Majjhima Nikaya, for those of you who want to look it up. Um, and it's called the Aripariyasana Sutta. And listen to what the Buddha says about his awakening. It's a little bit different. So suspend whatever ideas you have about him seeing a morning star and turning on like a Christmas tree or whatever. Um, but just listen to, to his words here. I considered the Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand. It's peaceful, it's sublime, and unattainable just through reasoning. So what he awoke to is peaceful, sublime, hard to see, and you can't just use your mind to find it. To be experienced by the wise, but, this should be in capital letters, but this generation that's us, delights in attachment. 
takes delight in attachment, rejoices in attachment. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth. This actually puzzled me a little bit because the Buddha does not usually talk about waking up to a truth. Um, capital T, truth. And, and the word for truth in Pali is satcha, and Sanskrit is satya. Um, and so I went into the Pali canon to try and explore this a little bit deeper. And actually, the word uh, satya is not there. Uh, the word that Bhikkhu Bodhi translates here is the word tanha. Not to be confused with tana, which is craving, but tanha, which means the ground or the foundation. So if we go through that again, um, what the Buddha describes waking up to is this ground. It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? That the Buddha has this awakening, and what he awakes up to is this, the ground. And then he goes on to describe how this ground is conditioned. In other words, everything that we call a ground, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, arises in conditions. One simple condition is that for me to see something with my eye, there has to be a conditioned arising of both an eye, there has to be an eye present, there has to be an ear present for there to be sound. So right away you have a kind of co-creation that you can't separate the world from this body that is experiencing the world. And that everything we notice is not only conditioned, it's, inter it's interconnected with so many other things, it's also impermanent. It's changing. And so the Buddha describes what he's waking up to is contingency, is the, the truth that everything is interconnected to everything else. Dependent origination is the technical term. But how we can experience that is to wake up to the fact that everything we experience is conditioned. And because it's built on conditions, those conditions are built on conditions. All the way uh, forward and backwards. And that all conditions are changing. They're impermanent. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this as truth, but the word actually is tanha. And it's interesting to connect this, I think, to the Buddha's most famous teaching these days, um, the Satipatthana Sutta, which are the four foundations of mindfulness. And you'll hear in the title, Satipatthana. Again, the, the, the ground of mindfulness. Uh, bringing our attention to this. And I don't know about you, but when I hear about religion or spirituality, I want to wake up to something other than this. Like, this is why I'm trying to get out of here. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I'm looking underneath things. It can't be this. When I hear the word spirituality, I think, okay, so, it's, so there is a god or a divine in the floor. Or like behind the corner, or, or in the heart of my teacher. But to recognize that actually 
the Buddha woke up to this ground. Another way you can say it is this is it. Suppose that all of our desire to look outside of ourselves for something to ground this self is actually been a movement in the wrong direction. And when you dovetail that with a culture that does not trust themselves, that is plagued by self-judgment, and when that dovetails with consumerism, you have a recipe for a practice that nourishes suffering, not a way of life that reduces suffering. So the more we try and find products and lovers and RRSPs and even religions to ground us, the more we can work against the heart of what the Buddha was trying to articulate. That this is it. And then he says, why are people of this generation, I like this because it's so timeless, why are people of this generation having such a hard time seeing this? Because they delight and they revel in having attachment to their view, their view of themselves. In another translation by Stephen Batchelor, he says, people love, delight, and revel in having a place, having a viewpoint. In other words, clinging to our ideas about the way things should be. And so the Buddha offers some very practical instructions. A little later on, he uh, teaches in the Satipatthana Sutta, and I just want to read this. I know many of you here, we've studied this together for years. Um, he says, uh, the way to attain, or the, the, the way to create a practice so that one can see the nature of suffering and bring it to, or diminish it, um, is to know the body as a body. How many of us are honest enough with our body that we really know it as a body? Most of us reference our body to the world. It's, it's too fat, it's too small, it's not healthy. It, but the Buddha says, but those are just the conditions. And that's it. Can you wake up to that? I don't know, can you? Um, here a bhikkhu, the word bhikkhu actually means beggar, which is you. Here, here a bhikkhu folds her legs crosswise, sets her body erect, and establishes mindfulness. Ever mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. Breathing in long, she understands. There's breathing in long. Breathing in short, she understands. I am breathing in short. We can translate this as saying, you sit still, and if the breath is long, you don't make it short. And if it's short, you don't make it long. So in other words, to, to open up to the feeling of breathing in the body without sculpting the breath. 
And I've always had the thought in this instruction that if you couldn't sit and leave your own breath alone, how could you possibly leave other people alone? Or like real estate. Or your children. Or your parents. How can we leave each other alone? How can we give each other space if we can't even do it in our own body? And what I also want to tease out of this is that the Buddha begins with the body. He's saying, if you want to start bringing suffering to an end, pay attention to your breath. And most of us know that when we want to pay attention to the breath, we can't. If I say, notice your inhale and exhale, you'll notice how the mind is sky-flighting everywhere other than the here and now visceral experience of breathing. And the Buddha says, not just breathing, but to open up to the feeling of breathing effortlessly, without changing how you're breathing. Which is the beginning, so this is just the first of four foundations, of opening to this ground, how things really are, not how we want them to be or how we wish they were. Does this make sense? A little... So Patanjali does something very similar. In the yoga tradition, uh, the great sage Patanjali, who maybe comes five or six hundred years after the Buddha, um, offers something very radical, which is he takes a tradition that is um, so focused on God, on the soul, these terms Brahma and Jiva and Atman, And he just takes that whole language of trying to find God or trying to find a soul, and he just omits it. He just, it's like he takes that language and he just puts brackets around it and just puts it aside. And says, in what I think is the most important sentence of his teaching, Tada drashtuhu svarupe avastanam. Tada. It's actually where we get the word ta-da. In in 17th century Europe, magicians borrowed Sanskrit words to make their their performances more uh, more exotic. And so this is where, you know, so ta-da means ta-da. Here's the third sentence. In the second sentence, he says, uh, yoga is when we're not uh, uh, attached or clinging or identified with all the movements of mind. Hi, baby Janine. And um, then he says, ta-da, and then drashtuhu, the one who's seeing, drashtu, drashtur means to see, um, drashtuhu, svarupe, so sva is self, rupa is form, avasana means to abide in. Then the one who is seeing, which is a metaphor for the one who is seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, abides um, in swa, self, rupa, form. In other words, for those of you who are, are not studying Sanskrit, then you can be yourself. When you are not clinging to everything that moves through your awareness, then you are free to be yourself. 
it's interesting that what he uses is this term self-form. He doesn't say you wake up to a higher self. He doesn't say you get up and out of here and that menopause ends and that you no longer get gas or migraine headaches and aging stops and then you get reborn as a prince um, and you look like Clive Owen or whatever. Um, what he says is, and then you abide in your form. This, this, is, this is like the grand, this is the punchline. And you read this and you think, what kind of philosophy is this? That if I really wake up, what I wake up to is this? But actually, maybe we need to hear this over and over and over. I need to hear this. I know that we're all connected, but I don't operate like that all day long. I go into my atomized version of myself that's more important than other cells and certainly more important than most of the animal world. And I move through it, usually in a fairly aggressive, self-centered way, because I forget. I forget how we're interconnected. And the Buddha is saying, I woke up to this. And Patanjali is saying, when you wake up, you wake up to this form. Should I say it again? Yes, sir. Yeah, because now you're just like... <laughs> You know, so many people say that, you know, they're on a spiritual practice, they have a spiritual practice. And I, I think we're living at a time where what we need is not so much a spiritual practice, but a material practice. That people say our culture is materialistic, but we're not materialistic. We don't love the material. If we loved the material, we, we wouldn't build our cities like this. We would use good materials. We would care about our sidewalks. We would care about uh, our parks. We would take care of, of what we design and how we design it and how it benefits all creatures. And so what we need is not a spiritual practice, but a material practice, a practice that values the body not an aesthetic body, but the body as a body. And what nourishes this body? So that we can have jobs that are meaningful. All the depression that's caused from doing work that is not meaningful. From living in communities that are not beautiful. You know, we're about to have an electoral race in the city. I guess it's already started. And I mean, we should ask our mayors, like, what do you think is beautiful in this city? Carmen is not. Yeah. What do you think is beautiful in this city? The point being is, is to value this body. And for many of us, we practice yoga postures who are in this room. And when we practice yoga postures, we're, we're putting the mind and the body uh, together via the breath and we're yoking the prana, the, the energy of the breath, 
with the chitta, our attention span, in every moment. And in traditional yoga texts, and my chapter, if you buy the book, is primarily about this, uh, a lot of the yoga texts talk about something called mula bandha. The word bandha comes into English as the word bond. And the word mula means root. And at the end of our exhale, we can try this together. There's a pause. And if you start working at the end of your exhale with your attention, you'll start noticing that you can actually bond your awareness and the feeling of the end of the exhale, which is uh, the uh, toning of your pelvic diaphragm. And on on your inhale, the, the central tendon of your pelvic diaphragm lifts. And you can feel this lift. And this is called mula bandha, the root bond. The, the bonding of our attention and the feeling tone of the end of the breath. <coughs> and when you start doing this practice, which is really the core of asana practice, um, you start to realize that you can't feel the end of your exhale and have discursive thoughts at the same time. In neuropsychology, this is called reciprocal inhibition. When you pause at the end of your exhale, you bring your attention down into the core of the body where there are deep emotions and old feelings. And anybody who's practiced for a long period of time knows that most of the breathing exercises lean towards longer pauses at the end of your exhale. And that this drives people crazy because it makes people feel Sometimes I wonder how yoga can be so popular because it makes people actually feel something. Um, And most of us, when we start connecting with deep feeling, our habit mind is programmed to get out of there as fast as possible. And, And the word yoga, which I translate as intimacy, means to yoke or to become intimate with the end of the exhale and then through that practice with whatever is showing up in our lives. A lot of us think that to be intimate is just to be one with a tree in the rainforest when you're on acid <laughs> on Salt Spring Island or whatever. But, but this practice is to be one with everything. To be one with sadness. To be one with loneliness. To be one with anger. To really get into anger and to know anger selflessly. To really know anger selflessly. selflessly. To become one with whatever's going on in our lives. And this is the ground. This is the ground. It's not separate from us. And as Simone said, that kind of intimacy is healing. And it heals the parts of us that want to run away from what we feel, from what we think, from what's going on in our communities. And so maybe we could say that psychologically, enlightenment is the ultimate cognitive dissonance where we become less reactive 
in a world that is hyper in its reactivity. That we experience less suffering while others are still suffering. And that dissonance is unsettling unless there's a practice that can continually ground us in this moment. I'll say a few more words and then we can open it up. To sum up so far, both the yoga tradition and the Buddhist tradition as I'm translating them um, are carving out a path from the conditions of our lives, not independent of the conditions of our lives. That we're using what's going on in our lives to wake up so that we can become intimate. Yoga is to become intimate with what's really going on. And we need some technique. I don't know about you, but I like to read Eckhart Tolle like everyone else. And I, and I read it, and then I put it down, and two minutes later, I'm just as neurotic as I was when I <laughs> first reached for it. Um, we need to move beyond just book dharma. <laughs> and to really take up a practice so that we can work with our potential for distractedness, for greed, my potential for anger and jealousy and envy. And in doing so, this small body becomes a whole universe in which I practice that gets valued. And then because that practice helps me work with my own reactivity, it becomes the beginning of a radical path of social action where we see that being socially engaged is not just doing good work out there in the world, but real inner transformation. We've seen so many political revolutions in the last century basically replace one gang of thugs with another. What would it take for a revolution where people work on themselves and work on their neighborhood simultaneously. I don't want to set up some hierarchy where it's like you have to get enlightened and then you go into the world and do good work and feed people. But both together. When the Buddha says that he woke up to interconnectedness, he planted the seed for a radical path of socially engaged practice. Realizing that what the self is, is everything. Dogen says, I woke up and realized the mind is nothing other than the moon and the stars. And I would say, the more I wake up, I realize that I am not separate from the people in my neighborhood I don't like looking at. I walk down the road and there are certain people I don't look at. 
do you do this in your in your neighborhood? I, I, I take pilgrimage in my own body. And there are certain characters in there that I don't want to look at. And then so I have people around me, like my son and my friends and my teachers, and say, hey, uh, I don't think you're looking at that one. And this becomes the heart of our practice, is to become intimate with those parts of ourselves that we've split off and that we don't trust. And those are the parts that are so susceptible to advertising. (laughs) I was in Los Angeles a few years ago while the Dalai Lama was teaching there. He was teaching uh, um, Nagarjuna for eight days. And uh, on the third day, he said, every day... I take the limousine from where I'm staying in a hotel to the stadium and we pass by, some of you might know this area where all the electronic stores are, and he's like, it's only been three days, I don't know what any of the products are, but I want one. (laughs) Tanha, this ground. Tanha, by the way, it's hard to give a talk like this and not the academic in me wants to say, is like in the background trying to. Uh, but the word tanha is where we get the English word tonic, not like gin and tonic, but if you're a musician, you know, like a tonic. It's like when a song is in a certain key or something, you say, or, or there's a piece in, you know, G or whatever. Um, but, but like to wake up to the tone of things, to, to wake up to, to how things are, to just this. There's a story about this I like to tell, a Chinese story about a woman who was practicing in a monastery and left because she felt that the practice was not helping her wake up to, in that tradition it's called the way, the Tao, which literally actually to tie this in means a road. If you travel uh, in Asia, the Tao literally is, is a path. She comes back to the monastery and says to her teacher, I want to enter the path. I want to enter the way. And I would translate that for us as, I want to enter my life. Have any of you ever had this experience? Like, you've been escaping your life for a while, you tried it, it was fun. You bulldoze through all kinds of people's lives. And now you want to enter your life again. But it's not so easy. And she comes back to this monastery and says to her teacher, I want to enter my life. So picture rural China, there are rice paddies, dikes everywhere. And um, the teacher says, do you hear the water flowing through the dike? And she stops. It's like saying, do you hear the fan? And she stops and says, oh yes, I hear, that's the sound of water. We might say, that's the sound of the fan. And the teacher says, enter there. 
we're in a yoga posture, and it's really, uh, and the teacher holds you there for a little while. Has anyone had this experience? Um, and suddenly, you feel something. Or you're in psychotherapy, and you have a good therapist. And instead of interpreting what you're bringing, they just hold you there. Or you have a practice, and you're sitting still, and you're in loneliness. And you don't go check your iPhone. And you open up to that. And, and this teacher is saying, well, just enter there. Enter here. What does the body feel like right now, just sitting here? And the light and the sound. And can you take all these images and the altar and just put them aside? And just to feel what you're feeling here. And that's the kind of intimacy that the Buddha is pointing at. And then once you can do that, you bring all this back again. And you see that all these teachings are pointing to this. And maybe the punchline of all these teachings is, is imagining intimacy as separate from this moment. Separate from you. And that the map um, is not really the territory. We really need to enter the territory. Here is a little passage by Shuang Tzu, Confucian teacher. Um, The purpose of a fish trap is to catch fish. And when the fish are caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch rabbits. When the rabbits are caught, the snare is forgotten. The purpose of words is to convey ideas. When the ideas are grasped, the words are forgotten. Where can I find a person who has forgotten words? That is the person I would like to talk to. These teachings are conceptual platforms that point at non-conceptual experience. Meditation, body practices, breathing practices, and relational practices are designed to undercut language, to open our hearts, so that we can really feel not the nature of reality, capital letters, but how things happen, how our lives happen, to have insight, vipassana, pasha means to see, comes from the same root as drashtu. Um, V means to, to interrupt. To interrupt the ways we normally see and get insight into the real workings of how things are. And I don't know about you, but I don't want intimacy. Like, I mean, I want, I want intimacy. But I don't really want intimacy because I want to control people. And I, I want to like have people do what I want them to do. 
I'm sure none of you are like this, but personally, <laughs> the thing we most want is connection, right? You know, Freud said that, that, that the strongest desire in us is a repression of death. And, and Adler left Freud's world and said that the strongest motive in all of us is actually power. We want to control things. And Jung, hiding his yoga studies very well, said the strongest desire we all have is actually to connect with something greater than the stories we have about ourselves and the world. I don't know about you, but that connects to my experience in the Dharma. Is when I can practice in a way where I can let go of my need to have a story that makes sense of everything. A good interpretation for everything and everybody. And then, that brings forth relational life. Are you really ready for that? I mean, really, do you want that? So a lot of you were here on Tuesday night, just down the road from here, and we talked about creating in our community a, a, a path for intimacy. And everybody loves this idea, and it freaks them out. You should see the emails that I got. I, I would love to just sit here and read the emails. <laughs> So I'll just sum up by saying um, I didn't follow any of these notes at all. That the function of a Buddha is to wake up. That the function of a yoga practice is to wake up to the inherent yoga, the inherent intimacy of everything. Yoga doesn't mean to unite one thing with another. It means everything's al already inherently united. But we forget. And so that's why we practice. And it's not enough to just practice in yourself. It's not enough to practice with your own greed and your own capacity for violence. We also have to take our practice into the world because there are institutionalized forms of violence and greed that are going to operate whether you feel peaceful or not. And in the Buddha's time, because there was such a strong social fabric, the, the language emphasizes the individual. And I think now we need to do the opposite. We need to de-emphasize the individual. And we need to practice in a way, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, where we can recognize that the next Buddha is Sangha. Simone and I were talking about this week that you know, the original definition of this word sangha means to not how many people are in a room, but, or how many people are members of your center, but to have faith in one other person's practice. 
to have a friend and to see that they're a little bit less neurotic than you. Even if they're Jewish, they're, they're not worrying as much as you. And then because you see the practice working in one other person, we get inspired. We get inspired. And that is Sangha. That's the heart of community, to have faith in other people's practice, even when we can't rely on ourselves. And then, as a group, we can do incredible work in a world that really needs us. To come to a place where we realize that selfish pursuits for happiness are dead ends, really. Everything we do to try and get happy for ourselves is ultimately unsatisfying. And not just to end the ego, whatever that means. I don't know what that is. That if you're people with some psychological understanding, the flags should go up when you hear that. But to and not to neutralize self-image, but but to transfigure the self to become a human that cares for others. A mind that is soft enough to, to really care about our neighborhoods. And this is the heart of the Dharma. And tonight I was going to talk about yoga postures and the connection, and I was going to talk about uh, the Buddha's first yoga teachers, because the Buddha studied yoga before he woke up. And actually before the Aripariyasana Sutta, when he awoke, the first thing he wanted to do was go tell his two yoga teachers. But they died. And he, he was, it kind of stalled him for a week. Um, but anyways, I, I didn't talk about any of that. Because I, I see who's in the room. And, and so what I'd like to do is, is just come to a, a conclusion here and uh, maybe just talk with you about some of what I mentioned. Um, because uh, when I look around, like the level of practice experience in this room is phenomenal. Uh, some of the people in the city who I think have the, some of the most uh, uh, committed practices I know are all here. So it's nice to see. So what would you like to contribute? Something really clever <laughs> would be would be great. Do we need to stand up and just stretch for a sec? Yeah? Okay, let's do that first. Just let's stand up, stretch. And we can be informal. We can just talk together. And we'll go for 15 more minutes, and then we'll have a little... Uh, you have an opportunity to consume books after. 